from Nashville, Tennessee, and broadcasting around the world, you have now crossed over to the far side. Tonight's guest is a prophetic visionaire, and he also just happens to be the world-renowned authority on Nostradamus. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we are once more joined by the extraordinary John Hogue. His latest prophetic book is now available through Amazon.com, and it's called Predictions 2015-2016. You can find it by going to thefarside.tv slash predictions2015. And without further ado, John, welcome back to The Far Side. It's great to be back on, Bob. It's great to have you here with us. A prophetic visionaire. That's what I think of you. <laughs> Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. Today, um, uh, a couple of my real long-shot predictions actually came through in the last 24 hours. Really? Concerning, yeah, concerning um, the um, what kind of government the Netanyahu would form. I uh, basically said, I'm going to be writing some articles about it at hoagprophecy.com, but back in, um, well, when the, when the election happened around 17th March, there's a process where the president of Israel gives the winner uh, a certain amount of days legally to get together a coalition government. And uh, you've got to, like, get it together. If you're, if you're one minute late, uh, it goes to the other guy wow. to form a government. Yeah. So what happened was that, I'm kind of prompting up the exact quote here, um, is that the... I said way back in 11th April, I said, I believe Netanyahu will gather his cabinet at the last minute, all all at the right of center of parties that he wants. Uh, he, he's come back to Likud, he says. He means it. Kulan on Jewish home, Shah's, Israel, Benetu, United Torah, Judaism, all those lost seats in the election. I predict that he will gather the most pro-Zionist supremacist coalition government Israel has ever seen and I also said it uh, earlier there that, that he literally go right to the last minute. Well, two days ago, he literally went right to the last minute and formed a government with most of those, uh, especially with Jewish home, uh, with uh, his... So his new government is extremely right-wing. They even call it the... Some of the press are jokingly calling it in Israel the war party. So, so that came true, and the other long shot was the British elections. Um, you know, the pundits and everybody have been saying for months now that they figured it would be a very tight race with Labour Party against the Conservatives, and that there would that Labour had a good chance of squeaking by with a slim majority against uh, David Cameron's Conservatives, and uh, I was always consistently saying, no, Labour is going to be slaughtered as revenge for what they did to the Scots by not coming through with promises of autonomy during the referendum. And I saw the Scots uh, basically slaughtering the labor, taking seats away from them, and labor crashing and burning, and that Cameron would win number 10 Downing Street for another five years. And uh, that's exactly what happened overnight. Uh, the Scottish National Party uh, took 56 of the 59 seats available in Scotland and it sets the stage for another uh, thing that, I, that my uh, intuition is adamant about, that Scotland will break away from the United Kingdom, and the United Kingdom will break up 
around 2017, 2018. And I would say that what happened in England today is definitely uh, reinforcing that potential future timeline. Mm -hmm. What was it? Just last year, Scotland had the opportunity to break away from the United Kingdom, but they decided not to. Well, actually... It's a very interesting stuff about that. Um, there was a lot of botched ballots and, and hocus-pocus going on, and it seemed like there was an awful lot of, um, of the British Secret Service was involved in trying to keep Scotland in. Um, and so, but even then, we, even with that said, it made the election closer than it was. But what really brought it in was that Cameron and these and the the English parliamentarians had made all these promises to Scotland that would uh, basically make it autonomous nation within the United Kingdom. And as is so historically the the state of things for hundreds of years is the Scots seem to buy into whatever the British leaders say, even when they were chieftains in the old days, and then the, the English turn around and, and break all their promises and, and screw the Scots. <laughs> so the, um, it happened again, and uh, you know, Cameron's saying, oh, you know, I'm going I'm to make sure that all that happens. But the problem now is that Cameron, although he's got um, a, a, a slim majority, he doesn't have to get a coalition. Now he has to deal with his own conservatives in the back benches who are ext- are extremely more against his policies. When he had the Liberal Party uh, anchored to him, he, he kind of kept a lot of the more harder core people in his own party at bay. Now they're going to challenge him. And so, if anything, he's going to have a much rougher time now than he had before. So... It's all leading to the referendum in 2017, and if the British do what I think they will do, is try to get out of the European Union, Scotland will break out of the United Kingdom because they want to stay in the European Union. So, and then, then you, so, you know, enjoy all, any pictures you see of the Union Jack flying over Parliament or any British towns, because uh, that flag in a few more years won't exist. Mm. What will the consequences be, if anything, once Scotland decides to leave? Well, Scotland, Scotland, uh, actually, I think Scotland will, as a country of four million people, uh, will do quite well. The the revenues that they will get from from the North Atlantic oil fields that they will get, um, I mean, the North Sea fields, they will now get a part of that, half of that. And uh, I think with a country that's so small in population, but with such a potential revenue, I think the Scots will be far better off out of the Union than in the Union. You know, it'll be a difficult... um, I mean, the people that are going to lose out are the English. Mm -hmm. And they're going to lose their nuclear submarine bases. They're going to... um, It's going to be difficult. I know there was a lot of people trying to put the scare on uh actually blatant lies were were proffered by Westminster about uh how people were going to lose their pensions and so they used a scare tactic to to frighten enough people in Scotland but this time around the Scots have saw that they were hoodwinked and i think historically speaking what happened in the referendum of 2014 was you tricked me once you tricked me twice you tricked me for hundreds of years this time I think we're heading towards a separation and a breakup of the United Kingdom.
which is interesting if it happens in 2018, because it literally would have been a process that started exactly 100 years, well, actually 104 years earlier. You know, the British Empire, uh, when it joined into the Continental War of World War One, it didn't have to. I mean, if one reads the history of this, the British all were, were preferring to be neutral. And the only reason why they got in is they had a treaty with Belgium, and if the German imperial armies marched through Belgium to get to France, doing their von Schieflin swing around Paris, then that would compel the British to go in. But they could have actually not gone in. They chose to go in, and they got stuck in World War One, mortally wounded the empire financially, and industrially, and that began the slow decline, or rather rapid decline of British Empire. Uh, that began in, in that period, uh, 1914, you know, just a, 101 years ago. But I predict that uh, it will, in 104 years later, in, in 2018, it will nail the end of Britain, the United Kingdom. It was a concept that's been around Britain since the 1700s. And that the uh, Union Jack, which is a a cluster of different symbols of the different leaders, you have the white, you have the Red Cross of England, uh, you have the white cross of St. Michael style uh, cross of white against the blue field, and and some of the trim in the red is for for Wales, without the green parts of their flag. All it what will happen is if Wales is still in it, you'll get you'll get a Union Jack that just has strips of green in it. Actually, will clash. It won't be as <laughs> from a fashion point of view, design point point of view. It won't look as pretty on top of the castles and all. <laughs> or, or it will go back to the white flag with the red. I mean, I'm saying, you know, to my in predictions for 2015, 2016, my many British readers, I'm saying, you know, you're going to run up the white flag of surrender of your if you don't treat Scotland right. You're going to run up the white flag with your red cross on it as a surrender flag. Wow. Is there a possibility that by 2018 this could turn into a minor revolutionary or civil war type of event? Well, in a bigger sense, there we are. We are in a. In, I I see. I mean, more in a. God, there's so many entry points to come into this quite good question because we are we have entered a period since 2014. Of revolution in the world. I mean, there's already been the information revolution, but now we're talking about social and political revolutions. They couldn't really take off since 2011 to this present month because of of a sign in astrology. It's called the Uranus-Pluto square. This square, in layman's terms, uh, made it impossible for movements were there, but they had no leadership. And they clashed with an establishment which just shut them down. Was it was an immovable wall not listening, just sending the cops. And this issue and if they didn't do that, if they were if they were a movement that understood they had to get organized and political, like the Tea Party movement, they they achieved the they got into power, they got into Congress, but while in Congress, then they were compromised by the establishment of big money that basically sat and divided and conquered. And 
and now even now Rand Paul is one of the one of the last significant leaders of the Tea Party movement, but they're just pulling their money away. The money's going back to the establishment. And the money because of Citizens United, which basically took the Republic away from American citizens in January of twenty eleven, just around the time when these squares began. Well now those squares are ending this month. In fact they ended on Cinco de Mayo a few days ago. And what that means is we're already seeing that now there's movement. Now pe- people movements are starting to arise. They're arising over Ferguson and Baltimore. It's going to eventually be, as I forecasted, a new civil rights movement. I saw that before the second Ferguson riots in November. That this was going to be called, I called it the American Intifada, where the young, impoverished people, and it will expand not just from black and brown people, but a new kind of race that's dividing us in racial and racist terms in the world, which I wrote about as early as 2007. And it's it's where it's the race of the haves against the race of the have-nots. And it, color becomes less of an issue, and it's more about what what class of race you're into financially. And uh, that is starting to also, I'm seeing mainstream even talking in those terms now, many years later. So we see it more burned into our minds with the with the iconic metaphor of the 1% versus the 99% of the rest of us. And so you have this, you have on a number of levels, a you have a world where 1% of the Earth's human population has 50% of the wealth. Um, and basically what that's like is like Tsarist Russia before the Bolshevik Revolution, where you know, a very small cluster of people, a small middle class, a large uh, aristocracy, of 1% of the Russian population with the Tsar had all the money. And they kind of wielded it with the kind of autocratic uh, habits that you see our banks and 1% um, sequestering and holding and hoarding onto their own wealth. The wealth is not flowing. So it's like what uh, Jesse Ventura once said, that people have got this all upside down, that, that Wealth is, uh, you're only wealthy, you should be valued your wealth by what you spend, not what you sit on and do nothing with. Mm-hmm. I mean, money, yeah, money that's just sitting there doing nothing is no longer a current, and therefore it's no longer a currency. It's not flowing. And so he, I, I thought his idea was quite intriguing that, and since he might actually be a presidential candidate this year, it's, uh, next year, it's even more intriguing to me. Um, that yes, we have now movement. The, the establishment also will move more openly to stop things, but the establishment will also be perhaps more available to hear the the cry and hue of hue and cry of the people. And you're going to see popular movements rising. And this gets into the very interesting world we're going to enter with the new political soap opera that happens, a series that happens every every four years. I mean, this is the real American idol. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, running on idol because they just, it's a lot of fume and a lot of exhaust and not a lot of the car isn't moving. The car of state does not get anywhere. Um, you know, we we're basically in the book predictions, 2015, 2016. I talk, I, I do this now where I do two year, uh, 
more and more I'm doing two-year studies because actually a lot of things are moving more in a 24-month cycle. So uh, in this book, uh, I talk about, I I get into what's going to happen next year that's already developing with the political campaigns. And basically what started as a kind of corporate, uh, multinational corporation coup d'etat was Citizens United. Uh, just widening open the gates for money to be free speech, for money to be basically the uh, lingua franca of politics. And if you don't have it, then your free speech is not as valued as the ones who do. So the the powers that be, and it's not in any organized way, but we basically have been given our choices. And the choices are, it's either Hillary Clinton or Jeb Bush. In either case... Um, those, those cho- that's the plan. That doesn't mean it's going to be that way. But certainly when you have so much money, when, you, when it looks like either candidate is probably going to double the spending of the last four-year presidential election by from $2 billion to $4 billion per person, $8 billion is probably going to be uh, spent on two people duking it out to get the presidency. And it's you know, there's there's two kinds of. When I look at the corporations today, I see them as as a kind of modern aristocracy. And just like the aristocracies of old, they're not monotheistic. They're not all uh, put together and united in one lockstep together. They're often fighting for power uh, and and turf. And there's certain uh, multinationals that like Hillary Clinton and the Clintons dynasty better. And there's those who like the Bush dynasty better. And uh, actually, in the, in the ones that followed uh, Obama had more money in the fight than the other people. So um, there seems to be, you can almost judge who's going to be president by who's got the most money. I think Hillary Clinton's people will actually make the most money. Uh, to win the election. Now, here's the thing. Um, I'm happy to announce, I don't often have good news, but I'm happy to announce that I see a momentum of people getting really pissed off about this whole situation, and you're not going to hear it on the mainstream news. About the only outlets on, on TV for news that you could actually hear real reports on this are Al Jazeera and Russia Today. Otherwise, all the other mainstream news is basically putting on a Walt Disney-fied Mickey Mouse version of everything. And you're not going to hear that there's really some major movements. And in my book, I I detail and even link people to these movements. For instance, there's moveon.org or movetoamend.org, which um, is a popular movement that started with just a dozen people around a dinner table uh, who in 2010 it ended up becoming uh, a movement of 300,000 people uh, of activists who are uh, moving in small elections and state elections and local elections. They've run, I think, about 100 elections. They've won all of them, and they're basically they're they're voting in favor of overturning Citizens United with a a Bill of Rights uh, amendment to the Constitution. Wow! You hardly you hardly even hear about them. The other thing that blew me away, because I didn't hear about it, it's been going on since 2007, but even when you're as involved with dealing with the information that's out there in the world, I mean, I completely overlook this, but my own state, Washington State, with 
Oregon and California and New York and Oklahoma and just well, Oklahoma's on the on the verge, and then Illinois have created a a um, rebellion, a passive rebellion against the electoral college, so that that the federal elections will be about not about states and swing states, but about just American people within the borders of the United States, where everybody's vote is absolutely valued. You see, most people are listening to this probably think they've voted for president if they vote. And I can tell you, you've never in your life voted for a president. You voted for an elector whose vote votes in the president. And the way it's set up is the electors, uh, if the majority goes one way or another, it doesn't matter if there's millions of people who voted for the other guy in the state, um, the electors will throw their votes to whoever got the popular vote in a state which focuses the focus on states, not on the national body of people. That's why you get a popular vote winner like Al Gore by half a million votes not becoming president, even though the majority had spoken. Whether you like him or not, it, is, it, is, uh, it was a, a, a grievous uh, lie to not have the man who the most Americans voted for win, be in office uh, because of the Electoral College. So when that happened... A whole, uh, there were a bunch of state legislatures which started this movement where if, if there is a dispute uh, over the vote, all the electors will be pledged in, in a number of states to go to the one who wins the popular vote nationally, not in their state. So what that's done is it's really clever, and it's the kind of thing you'll see more and more in, this, in the people movements coming in the future, where they don't try to fix things. They just go around them. Like, they're not going to try to tear down the Electoral College. They'll say, sure, leave it there. We'll just take the teeth out of it. We'll turn it into a political gelding. We'll get enough states to come over this way so that when the electors elect, they've got to throw their votes to the popular vote of the whole nation. That means that candidates have to go to Guam as much as they go to the swing states. That means that the candidates will have to go to all 50 states and the U.S. Ter territories because every vote will count. And so you won't have these votes by seven states that where they focus all their focus on Ohio and Florida and all that. And what's so silly is the, the, the mass media is still picking seven states. They're still an old thing. They don't know that this movement is now 61 electoral votes away from getting the magic 270 votes. That when enough states come over, that means that there'll never be a Florida recount again. It'll be a finally for the first time in American history. It will be actually a national election, and I think people are going to be surprised when even if it doesn't get to 270 votes, there's only 61 votes away. It will be a. They might be surprised to see that the the establishment, the way they've picked everything, is just not going to work. Things are going to be there, there's a there's a wonderful potential coming. When you, when you see a guy like Bernie Sanders getting in the race. When you see somebody like Rand Paul getting in the race, uh, you're, you're going to see an opportunity for a real popular people points of view being uttered and disturbing the, the narrative that, and the bubble that the establishment wants to play with Hillary Clinton and Jeb Bush that you haven't seen since Ross Perot threw a monkey wrench in everything in 1992 and actually talked a lot of what Americans beyond right or left, we're thinking. 
And so it's almost like, gee, we American people might actually have a seat in the debates where we get to talk to power and talk to these billionaires who have taken over the country. Um, so I'm, I'm still watching this develop. It's a timeline that's still developing, but I'm happy to see it's getting stronger. And I think uh, it, it, I, I hope that th- this two-party system is going to have party crashers. People that they that are not going to obey the show, and and I think I'm, I think that what will still happen is one of those two will be elected. Uh, the only way that I see Hillary Clinton not being elected is if she uh, succumbs to some a brain issue, uh, something to do with stroke or phlebitis or something like that. And if and of course if that happens, then. Suddenly, you might have Bernie Sanders actually as a Democratic guy, who's it would be a remarkable turn of events because he's actually a socialist. <laughs> <laughs> and and but but uh, people would at least be hearing on a national level ideas and concepts that that are going to break the whole Walt Disney Mickey Mouse bubble, mm-hmm. and they may still not win, but it will change. The situation. The people might still be forced to pick the moneyed master as as their as their man. You know, it's just like what happened in Russia. There was actually a revolution in 1905, and it was crushed. But the people were not uh, pacified by that. They it actually took a disaster like World War One to get uh, the country, the people then rebelled. And then you had the March Revolution of 1917, which was a democratic revolution with the Duma and Kerensky. And then in uh, November of, of 1917, you had the Bolsheviks. Uh, so it was three revolutions. But at, from 1905, that was the end of it. That was when they could never turn back. So what I'm, my point here is that after 2016, even if people power and people issues don't win out and the establishment finds a way through their money and their power to suppress that, it's not going back. It's not being pacified. And then it leads in the next presidential f- cycle, four years later, to what I've always felt is the potential for a revolution in this country, a second American revolution. I work towards, in my writings, uh, I work towards helping that be peaceful. If it becomes a, a violent revolution, it will not be like the revolution we had in the 1700s. It will be more like Libya and Syria. Mm-hmm. Because we're about as awash with weapons as those two Arab nations are so we can't, don't want to go there. We could go there. It's been in prophecy a lot. I've over the years shown collective prophecies, visions of, of America going around the time of the 2020s into a tailspin of revolution, with a new constitution being formed around 2026. Um, that is uh, looming before us in about two more presidential cycles. So. I'm, I hope that the people, the, the main cause of this problem is the United States populace is not understanding that they have to take a very active part in being watchdogs over their own government. And 
also they're stuck in this system where they their voice is not heard because it's stuck in a two-party duopoly, a two-party cartel. And in the book, I I uh, talk about how um, you're still pregnant following the lesser of two evils. You know, it's just like you're not any less. You know, I, the the exact term it was a little better hogism than that, but. And basically, I talk about the argument of, I well, I'd rather choose this party because they're better than Democrats, or I'd rather choose the Repub- um, the Democrats because they're better than Republicans if they got all power. You hear this so much, and that's that's the that's the rationales of slaves, who are talking about uh, uh, the lesser of two evils. They they bought the slavery idea political slavery that you've got to choose what they give you to choose. Massa has two choices for you. And what Massa says, you follow. Um, the truth is, and it's the one thing no one wants to really look at because it's so frightening because of the setup to disempower us, basically you don't choose either party. You, you can't because if you choose either party, evil is evil. If it's lesser or greater, it's like it it's the lesser of two pregnancies. You know, how can I choose to be less pregnant than the other person over here? You can't choose to be more or less pregnant. You are pregnant or you're not. This two-party system is evil or it isn't. And, you know, when you look at what's happened to it, with the fact that money, in fact, one of the great movements that will happen out of this will be a movement to expel all money interests out of politics and have it only funded anything dealing with campaigns by the public fund, because uh, and I, I foresee a situation where lobbyists will be illegal. I even foresee a situation in the 2020s when political parties will be illegal. And the reason why I say that is that political parties, um, even the founding fathers were were very concerned. John Adams and George Washington both left quotes and of concern about the forging of political parties because you know our our country was not formed with political parties in mind um and they said that they they will be a threat to the republic they will get special interests in and basically these two foresaw the troubles that we're having right now um i i think that uh, what will what will replace the void of parties will be what i call uh the political community movement and that's where you have a completely different mindset construct. You know, politics, parties are, are set to polarize one group against another, and the stronger group takes all. That's a, a very simple way of looking at it, uh, in a nutshell. In, in political communities, the concept of community to function is, when you're in a community, you work together with your neighbors. You may not agree with your neighbors, but you're always actually seeking, making an effort to find common ground, to to at least put aside the things that can't be solved, but come together to agree on what can be done. For the greater good. Yeah, and build on that and build on the trust of that. And then, uh, so it's about nourishing and it's about cr- trying to find mutual harmony, not polarization. And... I see a situation through the power of social media where people can access each other and gather in community and literally become a voice of community to power. And that will be what replaces political parties. Now, the upcoming revolutionary war that you think might happen 
but you hope won't happen. Could it be as simple as a social media revolutionary war? Whereas through social media, the United States citizens, we combine and we can take down a corrupt government and rebuild our nation. Yes, yes, that's that's succinctly what it could be. That is potential. It's the potential that it'll, this, this power will start to awaken in this current presidential cycle, and, uh, but it could be fully awakened by 2020, which is interesting in a prophetic level because of a cycle of, that we go through every 20 years that's basically called the Curse of Tecumseh. It is when, astrologically, the, uh, when Jupiter is... Uh, conjoined with Saturn happens every 20 years and usually in ancient times when people more sensitive to cosmic influences would never pick their leaders when Jupiter and Saturn were conjoined in the sky they would they would do penance meditation they would reflect on what they ought to do in the future and then do it the following year but of course with our insensitivity to these forces we pick our presidents in on even election years. So every 20 years, when a president is elected on the year ending in zero, we have consistently since the curse was hurled at 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 uh, I think it was Harris or Harrison um, back in 1840. Uh, he he died in office, and then 20 years later, Lincoln was elected. He got through his first term, but he was assassinated in his second. Um, then you go 20 years later, and you have Garfield. He is also assassinated, this time by an anarchist who died, mortally wounded and died. 20 years later, you have McKinley in 1900. He is also assassinated by another um, rabble-rouser of an anarchist. Then, 20 years later after that, you have Harding. Harding died of uh, illness in office. 20 years after that, you have Franklin Delano Roosevelt do something that had not been done according to the tradition set by Washington, uh, to the George Washington, that is. Uh, to, uh, he saw the dire approach of war, and he felt it was better to actually go for a third term as he knew America would be going into this war. And he felt he was the best leader to lead us through the war, and that proved to be true. So he went for a third term and won in 1940. Um, he was reelected again in 44, but in April of 45, he died of brain aneurysm and died in office. So 20 years later, you have John Kennedy elected in 1960. He is assassinated in November 22nd. 1963. 20 years after that, you have Ronald Reagan elected in 1980. He is, uh, there was an assassination attempt, but he survived it just literally by a drop of blood or two because he was actually internally bleeding much worse than they originally thought because of his hardiness. But he really just almost died on the operating table. Mm-hmm. Now, that was the only time that the conjunction happened in an air sign so far, uh, which is the lightest influence. So he survived. But then it gets weirder 20 years later. Rather than pick a president who is uh, assassinated, in, in fact, uh, 
in his or dies in office, we picked a president, the popular vote, who was politically assassinated in the Florida recount. Al Gore was the political assassin, assassin's victim of the Electoral College, and and the, the man who won the presidency was by popular vote was denied the presidency because of the electoral system. And so I see this as the curse taking a different uh, uh, course. It's now become more collectively impacting all of us. Not it's not the assassination of the leader of the chief every twenty years. It's it's a beginning of the undermining of our democracy, our republic, which started with what happened in in that period because it set us in the course to having now two eight term eight year two term presidents both of which have history will look back, I predict, as being among the most mediocre two two-term presidents we've had in in the period of America being a hegemon, being a superpower. And as both of them have done much to break down um, the influence of America in the world. And that also includes a kind of a, a breakdown of of discourse in Congress as well. It's not just the president's. Uh, the whole system is starting to break down, especially after 2000. So now we come up to the next Jupiter-Saturn conjunction in 2020, and I feel that it comes to a head. This curse comes to a head. It literally, uh, the system completely, either completely breaks down into a revolution, or it is reformed by a Jeffersonian peaceful reformation of our system. By by popular means, mm. and we break the curse. Your latest book. I was wondering what the symbolism is behind the image of an ominous-looking Saturn. Does that represent something? Is that oh, representing yeah. the overall picture that you're painting for us? Well, what it represents, I come. It's the first time in a book that I bring the reader, introduce the book in the beginning with that image, and and then come back to it as something that I would call in prophecy a, a scrying tool. The orb of, of Saturn, it's like a scrying tool is like a crystal ball or a leaden mirror or something that you use to trigger the inner awakening of the prophetic gift. And the picture of Saturn, for me, was a, that, that cover was the first thing I, I created before I even did the principal writing of a book which became <laughs> very Gothic and Saturnian uh, in that the, the, this book is really about reality checks. Saturn in astrology is the, considered the grim reaper uh, more from our petulance at not getting uh, what we want, not getting our dreams and illusions fulfilled. Saturn doesn't fulfill your illusions. Saturn exposes our illusions and the limits to to which our lives are limited by our illusions. And so if you look at it another way, I think Saturn is one of the most important forces in astrology language because it, it, wherever it is in your chart, it tells you where you are limited and where you need to look more realistically in your life and your personality. And, and in the broader sense, when you look at Saturn in the, in the forecasts of nations and movements, it, it it has a very important role, especially for the United States, where it's positioned in our natal chart, that every time Saturn orbits the sun, 
and comes back to the sign of Scorpio, where it's been for the last few years, except for the last several months, it's going to come back into Scorpio for one last three months uh, in the the sign, uh, the end of June to the end of September. And so that's why what what it rules is is the things that really focus we focus on right now and that is Saturn and Scorpio rules uh money corporations banking insurance like insuring what kind of a future we're going to have for ourselves and our and our children um it's it is about economic systems it is about bringing justice to political systems. Um, it's about, it's a call every 29 years of the orbit to recreate yourself as a nation, to reform systemic flaws that are exposed by the the dark light of Gothic Saturn in astrology. And it's a, basically every 29 years, if you look at this cycle you can actually see where America has had an opportunity every 29, 30 years to redefine itself. And it's been one of our great powers as a nation that we can, we can, when we're kind of stuck in a rut after 29, 30 years, we just re- reinvent ourselves. And the times when we, well, for, to give you an example of a positive outcome, the Civil War ended, and with the Saturn return at that time, we had to reinvent ourselves after that terrible Civil War. And we decided to look east, I mean, look west, and and expand ourselves and become, within the next 29 years, a full-fledged major nation influencing the world, even a world power, by the next Saturn return, where we had power and influence and economic influence on the world, uh, for better or worse, but still, it, this this came as a positive construction. Now... 29 years later, we entered the, the early part of the 1920s after World War One, and it seemed like we didn't have this debate. We didn't change ourselves. So then we set in motion 29 years of karmic consequence because Saturn rules karma, action, reaction. That's simply what karma means. If you do this bad thing, it comes around and bites you later. If you do good, it comes around and rewards you later. And so the, the, the country kind of going off on a big party of the Roaring Twenties and not really taking stock of where they wanted to go next created a situation, a libertine kind of situation, which led to the stock market crash, the Great Depression, and World War II. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it was suddenly we had a hard road to fight our way through and and come out of, if you don't learn the karmic lessons, they sit on your head and dance and yell cock-a-doodle-doo. And, and so the next Saturn return after that was in the mid-50s, and we had Eisenhower, and we had actually a country that really was thinking about the future. Where are we going? And we're going to build this, this interstate highway so that we can make access to the country easier for the whole country. That will help business. That will help us defend the country. It's a very structural kind of Saturnian thing to do. And we created uh, the infrastructure for, for becoming the great power that we became. When the next Saturn return happened around the early half of the mid-1980s, 
that was a period again of soul searching where what are we are we jimmy carter's uh, malay speech where we need to kind of re- redefine ourselves that happened a few years earlier where he lowered the gauntlet and said we had to become energy independent we had to look at shell oil uh, fossil fuels out of shell oil uh, shale oil uh, deposits we we had to kind of look at a long-term change, otherwise we would be in a mess by the beginning of the century, new century. Uh, that was answered by Ronald Reagan saying, no, uh, let's, let's go Hollywood with America. Let's, let's drill more. Let's build, build more arms. Let's, let's basically uh, make uh, profit by uh, investing in inflation and debt. Mm-hmm. And so that then is created in the last 29 years what we have now, which is a systemically flawed system, a fiat economy reaching the end of its tether. Um, it, we have literally now the whole world is waiting for, for uh, what's needed is a new system because the old fiat system is about to collapse. And, I mean, what's happening with quantitative easing, which I call in the book quantitative weaseling, uh, is that uh, we've basically been flooding funny money made out of ones and zeros, made out of nothing, just printing more of it, into the system, throwing it at the system and not actually investing it in businesses, but investing it in Wall Street. And that's why you've got 19,000 points in Wall Street. It's inflated way beyond value. And it's not going into the real economy. And so, I mean, it, it would be the lesser of the evils to put it in the real economy, this funny money. But what they've done basically is just thrown it into the financial dis, uh, system. It's making some people very rich on nothing. And it's basically coming to a point where it's just pushing the problems of our economy farther down the field. And I, I think they'll try to do the easing and raise interest rates in around September. And what they're going to find, the Federal Reserve, is that it's uh, basically when you take the defibrillators off the patient's chest, his heart doesn't beat anymore. It's basically going to show, as Saturn does, and this is right at the end of Saturn's final return to help us reform, to see ourselves in a cold and sober light, um, it's going to show that all of this is just playing around, that it's not really fixing the problem. But the thing is, it's another example, just like with the politics, uh, Bob, it's another example of what is going to happen in other major centralized systems, which the book explores. Um, it's, it's a decentralizing revolution that's going to come on. If you want to look, get a feel for what this revolution I've been talking about is about, it's, it, it's a... It's people moving away from the Piscean Age concepts of the last 2,000 years in the astrological cycle that had everybody worshipping authority figures, kings, father figures, and centralizing power into nations, into banks. Everything that has power is centralized, marginalizing the individual and making them subservient to the centralized power. The Aquarian Age, which we just entered, in the early years of it, and it'll be another 2,000 years of this age. This age is about decentralization. This age is about the Internet is, is a product of the Aquarian Age. It's where a whole lot of people who are individuals can't interact together as a group. 
and uh, and gain access to each other. It's similar to what the Wild West of cryptocurrency is teaching us. You know, what currently is going on as cryptocurrency is, is the Wild West. Uh, it will settle down into its own systems, but these systems will subvert banks. Banks will not be needed anymore. The decentralizing of, the, of money will be ended. Uh, there are things in, a, a call, in, um, in technology that are coming that will actually get everybody off the grid. Grids will be no longer needed because the power can be centrally located in every building. Uh, so then again, these these things I spoke of earlier, how you know people movements, just local people can create a huge wellspring of change. For instance, people are going to go to Paris to try at last to create rules for climate change and fossil fuel use that are legally binding. Um, it, it's about the worst astrology uh, of the year to actually do it in November, December of this year. So I imagine not much is going to be achieved. But, you know, they're going to try to keep everything at a two degree uh, Celsius level, which is already too high for the sustainability of the civilization. But they believe them in this idea that it's okay. I predict it's too high. Rather than uh, cut emissions by 20% by 2030, what is realistic is by 2030, everything has to be cut by 80%. Rather than bring uh, our, our emissions back to the year 2005, I don't know why people in this group in the government think that's such a nice year. That's the year of Hurricane Katrina and all the hurricanes that ravaged the Gulf states in one of the most violent hurricane seasons of globally charged climate that we ever saw. It, they should not be talking about 2005. They need to be talking about 1955. Mm. That they need to get the emission levels back to that by 2030. Now, people used to throw up their hands and say, well, the powers that be, they're just not getting it together and just sit around and do nothing. But what's happening in this current time is where people look at that and say, you know what, I see these bozos are not going to do anything. So our town will just do it. We're just, our town of a thousand people will just get our emissions under control and we'll, by 2030, uh, get ourselves off the, off the carbon footprint by 80%, shrink it by 80%. And so it, it's a new power that people are only just starting to understand is that they have within their local locality of community, they have the power to do a lot of these things and just ignore the government. Uh, and, and they're doing nothing. People are having to do it themselves. Mm -hmm. And so there will be an attempt, of course. That's what's so dangerous about these. The most important thing that's out there that my, my book is really sounding an alarm, the most important thing to look at right now are these, these free trade agreements that are being considered without allowing people to actually see them. Not even legislators can only spend maybe an hour looking through the, the thing, and then they can't talk about it. Um, these these agreements that are being considered uh, for nations around the Pacific and Europe and America, these are literally going to take the sovereignty of, of nations away from people. They're, they will make this not just what's going on with Citizens United uh, look like a local problem, but it will go international. Basically, those with the money have the power over even countries. 
that corporations will be able to legally sue countries who don't allow them to fill their their markets or their territory with stuff that people don't want because you'll be infringing upon their ability to make a living and the countries will be successfully sued hmm. so, yeah it, it is huge and you know the the media is not talking about it it is a huge issue the biggest issue other than of danger, other than uh, the other two issues people are either completely in a warped sense of understanding about or just not looking at, and that's planetary climate change and this new Cold War that industrial complex of the United States and the West has decided to create because their last Cold War on terror isn't making enough money for them. So let's just turn Russia back in, into the Soviet Union, even though Russia today has is nothing like the Soviet Union was before, even though... It, the Russian bashing and all that's going on, is, is an open propaganda move to get us into a mindset of fear to create a contain, containment of Russia that will last long enough to make trillions of dollars for industrial complex that, like, that needs wars of business, but not to have the war actually happen. But the problem in prophecy is, you look in the prophets and what they're saying is, you guys, uh, that's your plan, but the reality is it creates a thermonuclear war nobody saw coming, including the businessmen who didn't want that thermonuclear war to b bust the market, destroy it, because the next market they're going to have to invest in stones and sticks. I had envisioned a time when America, the United States of America, becomes self-sufficient again, where we don't need to rely on other nations. We don't need to go to Japan, have them import technology, because we can do that here and we will do that here. But according to what you're saying, there might be a time if we try that, we could be sued. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what these uh, free trade, so-called free trade agreements, which are, what they are is uh, libertine monopolist agreements that um, that they're trying to rush fast track through Congress. And I mean, just as a, whether there's good things in these agreements or not, it should be a public outcry. And I mean, anybody listening to this should make an outcry to your legislators that say, you know, the American people want to know what you're voting for. Otherwise, how can you vote for it? How can you say you're following your oath to protect us and our constitution if you don't even, if you're being told you can't actually know what this thing is that you're voting on. I mean, you know, pull the head out of where the sun doesn't shine, Washington. <laughs> uh, and so, but it's really, part of this has always been, Jefferson used to say that, um, that the government, the people should not fear their government. The government should fear its people and their awareness and their watchdogging uh, around. You know that that uh, you know the the power people we put into power should always have looking be looking over their shoulder at the people who are saying, look, do do our business, not yours. And and it takes a very active political um, action from the citizens. And the, this country has been lulled, uh, taken for granted its freedoms and lulled itself as a nation into, and even been helped to lull itself into a nation that, I mean, it's shocking to find out that we have not for a generation or two uh, 
really made a point of having every citizen in high school go through civics class. I mean, people are not being taught the fundamentals of their rights. And if, if you don't know your rights, you won't know when they're being taken away from you. And that's what they want. Yeah, it's, it's a, you know, it's interesting. It was the, the outgoing education, uh, head of education in Reagan's cabinet wrote Time magazine in 1988 uh, where he, was, he voiced an almost prophetic concern that education was being dismantled at such a rate that you know, we were creating uh, a, a, a nation of functionally illiterate, politically illiterate people. Um, I mean, you almost see it in the people that are even in Congress, that some of these people were born around then, and now they're actually our leaders, and they don't seem to know. It's like when you hear a bunch of senators get together and petition that Russia should get out of Ukraine, and basically the petition, they don't know that Ukraine isn't a part of NATO, and that NATO cannot go to war defending a non-NATO member. It's against the law of the, of the North Atlantic Treaty. Um, and these, these men and women don't even know that. Uh, that that's because I, I would say goes all the way back to them probably not having a serious civics class when they were forming their minds as, as high school kids. And so, I mean, you also have it even with Barack Obama. How can he, a constitutional lawyer, uh, think that he has the power to sign a list and that goes with drones and wipes people off the face of the earth? I mean, no president has the power to kill people just because he's president. I mean, again, it's like, what kind of a professor of constitutional law was he? Probably another another person, another product of a, of a dumbed-down educational system, which over generations has made us malleable sheep. I mean, everybody listening to this should go online and read the U.S. Constitution. It is your Bill of Rights uh, it, attached to it that any citizen cannot be a citizen unless they know their rights because they're being, uh, if you don't, you're going to find soon that they've been taken away from you. Exactly. I think it was, what, a year or two ago where they were trying to pass a bill to use drones, militarized drones in the United States to target American citizens for yeah. one reason or another. Yeah, it's, it, it's, uh, it, it's true. They were, they were talking about that. And frankly, the only, the only press and people that I saw that were really alarming, uh, sounding the alarm of this investigative reporters were people working for Al Jazeera and Russia today. They were, I did not see the perspective, uh, proportionate to the danger much talked about on CNN or Fox or, or other channels. Um, they, I mean, there are times when I look at the the network's news and they're literally just reading the State Department copy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I used to have a lot of respect for Christiane Amanpour back in the early 80s when she was a foreign correspondent for SBS TV in Australia and CNN. 
But unfortunately, uh, it does seem like she all she does is is if she needs copy, she just she just apes what the State Department is saying. And a lot of people do that now. They're not doing their job. They're very journalism has gotten incredibly lazy in our country. And it's uh, you know Brian Williams. How could Brian Williams become sit in the chair that? You know, uh, Chetley and Hunt, uh, Brinkley and other great uh, anchormen sit and then get away with telling all these lies, all of uh, stretching the truth. That's he should have been fired 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, John, I went to the moon and then I went and I jumped off the moon. I landed back on the earth. Brian Williams. <laughs> you get it? He will exaggerate anything from what I've heard. Yeah, it's 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 been long going with him and uh David uh Brokaw was a early critic of that and when he when Williams crashed and burned Tom Brokaw was not there to help him but to help him leave. Um he was the man pre- that he preceded at NBC. Mm-hmm. But that you know what what else that happens when you have Comcast that come catastrophic um huge corporation own NBC when mm-hmm. they started owning NBC and didn't know anything about journalism. NBC just went down the toilet, uh, as a journalistic, uh, not everything. It's just one disaster after another because it's a come catastrophe, you know, mm-hmm. the I mean, problem with journalism nowadays, it seems like everything is scripted. We can go back to the days of Dan rather when he decided to make, a false story against President Bush. He, he just falsified everything. He, it almost seems like everything is scripted. Well, what he did was worse. He didn't falsify that I saw the, I, I dealt with that in my book, Nostradamus and the Antichrist, because uh, Bush, Obama, Saddam Hussein, and some other figures of our time actually fit the prophecies that look at a contemporary being the third and final Antichrist of Nostradamus's prophecies. And basically, so I looked deep into whether George W. Bush, as well as Barack Obama, had any part in this. Uh, and and when I looked at the actual transcripts, the whole damn ra- rather <laughs> snafu, it was worse. It was they had they were on a story that they needed more time to investigate. There was some s- smoke. But no fire. I mean, uh, Bush was in this champagne, they call it the champagne squadron, uh, where a lot of rich kids would go to avoid having to actually go into combat. But when I looked at what Dan Rather and these people did, is they broke the basic rules of journalism. They just ran on something that, that they didn't verify with three or four sources. And and it was it was a a failure of basic journalism journalistic professionalism and integrity that shot rather down, and his people, they were not doing the job. They were just in a rush to have a story rather than find the truth. Mm-hmm. And there was some truth. You know, the sad thing for us is if they had waited and done the job right, they might have actually found some significant things. But they were out to hit George Bush and they were running out of time. And so they, they, they just rushed through it and they got caught. I mean, they got caught as bad as poor uh, John McCain picking Sarah Palin. Mm-hmm. They didn't, they didn't vet that one very well either. 
So, you know, this is in general, whether people are left leaning or right leaning or centrist, we have a country now of illiterates, even at the very top. A president that doesn't know he can't kill people, uh, the Constitution doesn't allow him to do that on his own without some kind of legal uh, ability. Uh, a, you know, a, a, then you have everything that Bush did. So, you know, I've been saying, I'm, I'm trying to be equal, even-handed in my hits here. <laughs> I consider both both the last Republican and the last Demo- and the current Democrat president to be among the worst presidents we've had in modern times. Um, and I think history will bear me out on this. And now we move to the the dynasties, Bush again and the Clinton dynasties. Mm-hmm. And and then I'm I'm concerned that Hillary Clinton will finish what her husband started in 1992 when he ignored the what uh, Baker and Gorbachev and George Bush Sr. had agreed upon to make NATO not step eastward towards Russia because they knew that if NATO encroached and took up countries up to the Russian borders, that would cause a, a um, well, it could start a new Cold War, which would go thermonuclear. And um, the Clintons, when Clinton got in power, he just ignored all that and started the, the process of encroachment on Russia. Russia has responded. Uh, it's not just geopolitical for them. They, you know, they are the survivors of two Western invasions in the 20th century. The first killed 8 million people. The second killed 27 million people. And so when they see, uh, you know, saber rattling and people coming uh, to their borders, they are, feel it's an existential crisis. And Americans don't respect that. Mm-hmm. They don't even know it. You know, there's a lot of people when they say a lot of kids now about, you know, today and tomorrow we're celebrating the 70th anniversary of victory in Europe. Uh, and there are a lot of Americans today that if you uh, it told them, they would don't even know that the Russians had were even in the war, <laughs> let, let alone the fact that on the Eastern Front, half the 60 million people who died in World War II, half of them died on the Russian front. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, uh, so that, you know, in a lot of ways, we were a sideshow to the big fight, the Armageddon in the steps, which was the Eastern front. And look what we're doing now, except for Angela Merkel of Germany, no other major leader is going tomorrow to be sitting at the celebrations in Russia for the end of the war. I mean, this would have been a wonderful opportunity for despite all the tensions that we're now having. I think if Obama had gone, the so-called Nobel Peace Prize winner, if he had just shown up, it would have created a milieu perhaps for, for us sorting out these problems. But I don't think they want to sort out these problems in the West. I think they want a new Cold War with Russia. And... And that is to perpetuate a a business of war. Uh, and you know, I, I it's so odd to say this because I'm a still small voice in this land when it comes to this. But you know, every nation eventually gets to play the bad guy. And America's enjoyed the myth, at least, of being the good guy in just about every conflict. Now we're the bad guys. 
we're actually the people promoting this. And history will, will bear with me and, and side with me on this, I predict, that what we're doing against Russia is so wrong. And it's, it could lead to a thermonuclear war as soon as 2017 or as late as 2027. Do you think that the government, the president, and whoever else is in charge of this, that they're wanting this to happen in order to further us toward a new world order? Well, world orders are... What we have now happening in the world is uh, the, the world order that began to crack and fall in 1914 and was replaced by the American world order in 1945 when we were basically with the rest of the world in ruins we were that blessed land that fought World War II and scarcely had any attacks on our own homeland we were the only people that still had a gold gold reserve that was functional we we were in this wonderful position of of creating a, a, an order and we did uh, and that world order, a hundred years later, is unraveling, as orders and systems do. And we're not looking at a new world order, even though the people that are actually promoting it the most are the neocons and neoliberals who are in Washington, who just think they can reestablish America as an, an even greater hegemon. But our time has passed. That that kind of relationship America has with the world is changing. Um, what is happening is the world is going multipolar and multi-economic, multi-monetary. Um, for a time now, we're entering a period where there will be spheres of influence uh, and near-abroad, as, as what the Russians call their near-abroad policy, where you know people will have areas that are their turf. And this includes China. China is not trying to rule the world. China's fixed interest is on on the um, the Asian coast of Eurasia, that region, um, as they're near abroad of in influence and interest. Uh, Russia has a similar issue where they focused on just nations around them. There's none. There's no interest in Russia or China to dominate the world. They, it's only a fear that Americans foist on a world that they are trying to dominate. I mean, look. Here's here's the basic math. If who's who's got an interest in dominating the world? A country with 1,000 bases in every time zone on the planet, or a country with um, 10? most of them close to their borders, with only about three far-flung fueling stations for ships in a couple places in the world. That's Russia. 1,000 bases, two that are truly outside of their sphere of their borders. Mm -hmm. One in Tarsus, Syria, and the other in Kamara Bay in, in Vietnam. Who's the one who's really running the show as a, as a, as a hegemon? You know, it's it's just simple math. The Russians don't have the capacity. The Chinese are similar. They have ten bases, but again, they're not like in next door in Cuba or something like that. They are just around the region of the uh, Western Pacific Rim, the Asian part. Mm -hmm. it, it, this is not in evidence a, a, a nation that's trying to rule the world. 
And But you would think, with the lack of thinking, the lazy uh, tying the dots that happens in the news, that China is trying to take over America. What's happening is that because of America pushing economically on China, and even more so on Russia, it is actually ex- uh, it's precipitating the drop of the U.S. dollar's value. Of course, the dollar is strong right now, and that is actually hurting our economy more than helping it in this currency war where everybody's fighting to get to the bottom of value so that their products will be cheaper on the market. And it, there's, no, there's no oversight in this, and this is also one of the factors that might bring us into a greater depression of the old system, that is, uh, in next year. Although we see a few rumblings in September and August of this coming, some some rumbles of thunder warning that things are about to happen. Hopefully they will be heated in a positive manner and we get serious about reforming economics. Yes. The, yeah, the, so actually, you know, what does Russia do when America um, and Europe sanctions it? It pivots to Asia and signs a 30-year historic deal, $400 billion dollars, where Russian, Siberian gas, natural gas, and oil is going to all flow into China. We basically, by not talking to the Russians, push the Russians into a Eurasian power shift. And and eventually what's going to happen from that is the yuan is going to end up being a reserve currency. And the dollar, China already does 20% of all of its business in yuan, not in U.S. dollars. And this is foreign business. When China does 60 or 70% of its business in yuan or ruble, that, that's when the U.S. dollar will weaken. You know, there was some idiot pundit that said the U.S. will always have a strong dollar as long as we have a huge military. I'm thinking... Tell that to the British when their empire was going down. And the reason why the British Empire fell was not because of two world wars, but because it couldn't afford itself. The sterling pound sterling was losing value. It couldn't sustain its empire and its, its huge navy to keep that empire. A navy that our navy is even larger. Um, when the value of the U.S. dollar declines. It's not going to be one trillion a year that we put into our military industrial security complex. It will look like that, but it's actually two trillion in value. It mm-hmm. inflated. And when that starts happening, you I call it the money bomb. You know, there's hopefully there won't be an atom bomb, but definitely if we keep pushing Russia and the others into this corner, they're going to light the money bomb, which is basically they're they're already starting to do it. They're turning away from U.S. dollar in petrodollars as a reserve currency, and they're, people are starting to deal in their own currencies now. And with time, in another few years, uh, that will significantly uh, weaken the U.S. dollar, and that is how that is the same source of the fall of the British Empire, and it's the same source of the fall of the Amer- Pax Americana, the American Empire. Um, so, Rather than push Russia, what would be better is to integrate our economy even more with them, since they are one of the most resource-rich countries after us in the world. But instead, we're alienating them, thinking that that's going to be profitable for us. It isn't, I predict. It is just hastening the decline and fall of American hegemony. In the past, 
just getting off this topic for a minute. In the yeah. past, we've seen Chelsea Bono go from a woman to a man. And most recently, Olympic gold medalist Bruce Jenner is changing from a man to a woman. There's been Bruce. some rumors going around that there's a rebellion against gender happening. What do you think? Well, it's a Bruce gender moment, I would say, to use a hogism. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I think that it, uh, many of these things are blown out of proportion by by a news media, 24-hour news media that's trying to find sensation. Uh, you know, yellow journalism, we used to call it. Now it's mainstream news. It's basically uh, news porn, you know. It uh, gets everybody titillated. I mean, transgender and transsexual operations have been around for decades. Um, and, you know, if Kim Kardashian wasn't good enough, then let's, let's go with the estranged or divorced husband who wants a sex change. And it makes wonderful copy for uh, the national perspirer and those other um, journalist uh, uh, degenerate uh, systems that are just trying to keep people distracted and stupid. Yeah. And so I really, uh, although I, I see in the future, in the distant future, when we, in a few decades from now, when we start understanding how cells degenerate and we actually end aging, how when we take what started with stem cell research and actually create situations where we can actually give you a shot and you can walk again, after your your, your DNA will rebuild uh, your spine and you won't see paraplegics anymore, you'll have a situation where a shot can be given to you and it ends Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease and other neurological diseases. These things are coming. Uh, they can only be delayed by our stupidity in focusing on on trifles and idiotic ideas and things. But it cannot be stopped. That a humanity will move forward. And when this happens, I foresee a situation in the future where, where in a future society, people who love, love each other, when they have a system of cell replication, they might actually decide to switch genders to experience what it's like to be the other. Wow. That, that will be a very common and popular uh, occurrence a century from now. So uh, a century from now, someone named John Hogue might actually be pregnant even though he's a man. There you go. And then after I've been a mother and experienced that, I might get uh, a shot and go back to being a man. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, and the other thing that will happen when, when we discover what causes the breakdown of cells and, and you will have a world that everyone looks 21, but a lot of the people that you're looking at are 350 years old. Mm -hmm. so, so that changes everything in, in regards to how we look at death. I mean, I foresee a time where you will have Jack Kevorkian temples of the dead, where people, temples of death, where people come to celebrate uh, with someone who's lived hundreds of years, who's grown tired of being embodied and wants to now be disembodied. And so they have a big party and send them off. Wow. I see that in the future. And so that co completely changes the way we look at religion. And, and I mean, another thing, too, I foresee uh, technologies that will come uh, in a hundred years that will allow us to speak to the, the disincarnate. Men and women will actually interview souls that they will impregnate and put into a physical womb. Hmm. That will also be the future, in the distant future. Wow. I don't know what to say about that. That just sounds 
fascinating. It's it's a in, in the in my field, I'm often confronted with the challenge of turning people on or telling people about things that turn people on and interest people and way in the future, which is so ahead of what interests us that it's it's almost it's almost hard to find an audience, you know, other than uh, because there are things that are coming in the future. Uh, in fact, it's so strong that I'm moving now more and more to not just do nonfiction, but I'm also going to try to use fictional devices to explain some of the more deeper future prophetic things that I foresee and actually create it in the context of stories so that and and basically hint to the reader that you know this is based on visions of the future some of the things I'm writing under the guise of fiction are prophecies about the future Mm -hmm. well John I've definitely appreciated that you've been here with us again a third time it's just been wonderful spending time with you before we go, is there anything you would like to share with the audience? Well, I just um, we just touched on a number of things that really we only touched on a few dimensions of this very multidimensionally rich book, which looks at so many different levels of what's going on in the next two years and how the actions we take and don't take will reflect on the next 30 years. So it's it, even though it's about 2015 and 2016, this predictions book, which is available as an ebook at Amazon. It's also available in Co- for Kobo and Nook readers, Barnes and Noble. Um, and in a month, it'll also be in print for those who like printed books. And I just would invite you all to go to the Amazon page. It's linked um, at Farside, and and look at and just peruse the, the free sample of the book and see if it resonates with you to take a journey, an epic journey into tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You know, John, the first time you were here, you did a song for us. Do you feel like trying anything tonight? Well, let's see. Um, I'm thinking of a song. Well, here, I'll just do a little of a song. I did a lot of talking, so I don't know know. how to sound. Your voice has got to be rough. Here we go. Yeah. Um, If I loved you Time and again I would like to say All I want you to know If I loved you Words wouldn't come in an easy way Round in circles I'd go Longing to tell you, but afraid and shy, I let my golden chances pass me by. Soon you'd leave me, off you would go in the mist of day, never, never to That was beautiful, my friend. 
I didn't crack. <laughs> <laughs> no, you didn't. That was perfect. And I'll tell you, I've told you this before, but ever since people heard you the first time, they have asked me if you have CDs out. If you don't, when are you going to get CDs out? Because they want to buy your music. They love your voice. Well, eventually uh, it'll happen. The more people, the way you can all help me is uh, buy my books because it takes money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so everybody that really wants that to happen, check out all my books and buy as many as you feel to get. And you are actually helping aiding that happen because I, I hear what you're saying and I'm, I'm going to try to do that. Well, thank you again, my friend, for being here. And I do consider you a friend. I've only, we've talked three times, but you've become like a friend to me. I, I feel the same way. Well, you have a good night. And everybody else, this is John Hogue with us, and we both bid you all a kind farewell. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>